Ooh, this is gonna be a fun episode, Nick. Are you ready? Yeah, because it's uh, wait, we have we have a thing we're doing now, right? It's a this is a big dog episode. Insert clip from the fugitive. Oh, I was just gonna insert the sound effects of my puppy barking at me in disdain. Well, you know, the from the fugitive, it's like you know, like the big the big dog is never wrong. I'm the big dog. I get you. Yeah, that's a movie. It's a movie. It's like from a movie. All right. Well, for our listeners, this is a career in film, a podcast where we uh, pick a movie that we love and then we do a deep dive on the director and check out their filmography and see what else is in there. But this is going to be our 10th episode. And for our 10th episode, we're going to start off our big dog series where we're going to talk about someone that you probably have heard of, unlike the rest of the people that we cover on this show. Yeah, normally we we get a lot of fun and and a lot of torture from from finding like really obscure bullshit from filmmakers that have only made uh, you know a, a few well known movies and we find some really cool stuff. The deep dive is what we uh, do. It's what we love. Yeah, but at the same time, sometimes we just want to be movie nerds and be like every other film podcast that's out there, and uh, that's what we're gonna do today. Yeah, so today, I guess I should take over now. Yeah, yeah. So I today, just stopped. That's my that's my whole thing. I just stop talking, and it's your job now. And I do that frequently. Nick, why don't you, why don't you uh, tell the people who you are? Oh, my name's Nick. Zach, why don't you say who you are? Well, that, what an introduction. I'm Zach. <laughs> yeah. Fuck it. Let's just talk about our boy Richard Linklater. Um, yeah, we're doing a Linklater episode today. I'm going to start off by saying we could have chosen probably a multitude of movies to be our number one. Um, Because this is just a a rich filmography. I will say, though, like if we were, you know, especially when we end up talking about a lot of movies that we got into, um, you know, growing up and stuff like that. Like a lot of our picks have had that sort of level of nostalgia. And uh, in this particular case, I would say that like one of the biggest movies for me. Um, in high school was Days and Confused. And I would say that was my real introduction to Linklater in general. So I would put that as my pick personally. Oh, no, no, it's mine too. I, I actually okay. discovered it in college and it's still just, it, it's one of the most comfort foodie movies there is. Yeah, for sure. And it, you know, it's the, it's the kind of thing where it's, it, it helped me determine my love for the song Tuesday's Gone. You know, the number, the number one song to play when the kegs uh, run out of beer. Yeah, um, I love a good Jim Dandy to the rescue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, no more, okay. Mister Nice Guy. It's time to record. Uh, let's let's start at the beginning, and then we'll go back to Days and Confused in a second. Um, yeah, well, we'll get to it pretty fast. I'll tell you that. Uh, but, so, yeah, Richard ahead, Linklater, talk, talk to us about the man behind the 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 man. So he was born in Houston, Texas, on July thirtieth, nineteen sixty. And I think all of those things are very important facts when looking at his film career. Because he was born in 1960, which sets him at a very specific time in history. And uh, Houston, Texas is very important to him. Uh, So growing up, Richard Linklater played baseball and football, but went to college specifically to play baseball. Which is also something very apparent in these movies. The man writes what he knows. Did you know, though, Nick, he dropped out of college to go work on an oil rig. I did know that, actually. Yeah. I, I didn't. That was a really fun fact. But uh, so he came back from working on an oil rig where he saved up his money to go to film school in Austin. And then from there, it was off to the races. 
Uh, his first film came out in 1988. It's called It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books. Uh, he made it while he was in school. It's uh, mostly a silent film. It has no clear narrative. It's only available if you buy the Criterion collection of Slacker, his next movie. It's included on the special features. I got nothing to say about this. I, It's a student film. Yeah, I generally, you know, there's always sort of debate about what we cover and what we don't when we set up an episode. We're like, oh, this this random documentary that went direct to video or this TV movie that this person directed, does this count? And uh, honestly, we usually make that uh, distinction based off of a few factors, uh, which the factors include um, how many people have seen it. Uh, it may include uh, how many movies that the person has done that we you know need to cover to fill an episode of this show. And sometimes it's off of whether or not we want to fucking watch it or not. Um, this is well, and availability of it, right? <laughs> so yeah, in this cat, like I'm sure there's some there's some hardcore Linklater fans that are gonna call us assholes for not watching the the, the this particular movie, and I I I just don't care. Yeah, <laughs> I think the important thing to say about this is uh, it's his first feature, but it's going it basically laid the foundation for a lot of uh, stylistic choices that he would uh, develop and hone over his years. Um, 1990 Slacker is next. That's the one that most people consider his first true film, and it was his first indie film, not in school. And why don't you talk about that, Nick? Sure. Um, yeah, so Slacker, um, it's another film uh, that doesn't really have a, a super heavy narrative structure. It's a very, uh, what is it, Lestrada or whatever it is? I don't know if that's the right... You know, the, it's like a th- theatrical thing where you go from... It's just like one character to the next to the next. I like to call it vignette Yeah, vignette but like it's, you know, like... We, there was that play when we were in college where they passed the handkerchief around. Oh, like, yes, that's what like you're talking about. Like, it's that kind of shit, yeah. Um, but uh, Slacker's one of those... Wow, they super pass. specific reference for... <laughs> but like it's a theatrical like there's there's multiple they did a movie a few years ago where it's uh it, it follows like the life of a dollar bill like it's like stuff like that it's a type of thing right yeah um where it's it, it follows you as an audience member follow one character to the next to the next um and the characters sort of it gives an, an intersection and then you know continues with what's going on that's what Slacker is. It's a it's a series of characters, some zany, most are somewhat zany. But yeah, it all takes place in Austin, Texas in the 90s. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it goes from, from person to person and all the characters are sort of you know, slackers, like the movie's title would say. But not really. It's also more uh, just sort of people that are, uh, you know, disenfranchised from what standard society is supposed to be in the 90s think of like you know you're looking at early 90s films like reality bites sort of sort of ex- have a, a similar character dynamic um the difference is that the dynamic in this doesn't really exist because it's vignette as you said like um it, one thing that i have found with and i guess we'll get into this more as we continue to talk about linklater's work um, one of his strongest elements is his character development. Linklater's voice and different soapboxy opinions and stuff like that, I find it very easy to digest 
when the char- like when it's coming from a character that I have learned more about and uh, it, it's the kind of thing where it, I guess the soapbox moments are earned a bit better when I have a relationship with the character in this it didn't personally work for me solely because they're characters that I'm just introduced to and so they felt a little bit more like caricatures than characters themselves and so it's like okay well you know uh, as much as it's fun watching this random character talk about what he thinks about the Kennedy assassination uh, I don't know who you are so I don't really care if that makes sense it's certainly something we can explore more as we go throughout his filmography but this is the first real instance of what I'm going to call the long philosophical monologue. Yeah. Which his characters often do. And you're right. And sometimes they are uh, very well earned because of the good work he does as a character developer. That was a terrible phrasing. No, no, sometimes, you're right. But, like the idea. but sometimes it works. And sometimes it's more just spitting interesting ideas. Uh, I mean, he is obsessed with philosophy. And sometimes that helps to aid in character development, and sometimes it's just presenting an idea. And in a film like Slacker and some of the ones we'll talk about later, I get the sense that it's more presenting the idea. But you also managed, you know, like other early 90s films, this movie is cited by many as uh, being one of those staples bringing about the 90s independent cinema craze. I mean, this yeah. was the one of the direct inspirations for Kevin Smith and Clerks. Yeah. Um, I mean, this was a $23,000 movie that uh, I think it ended up grossing like close to 1.5 mil. Yeah. I I mean, this is like when you're talking about the the independent films of the early 90s and you're um, like, you think like you think like Linklater, Robert Rodriguez, uh, Tarantino, Kevin Smith. um, And this is, I would say, probably one of the more arty artsy of that first set of um independent films like i think that i think that movie nerds are gonna like this a lot more than just your average dude or lady um but uh at the same time like i I appreciate it for what it is when it comes to like in being in purely independent cinema yeah well i mean this was successful enough that he then got to make dazed and confused which is you know one of the reasons we wanted to cover him um 1993 I would say that I think there are still a lot of people who haven't seen this when they really should. And maybe that's just on personal experience. Like, it was never a high school movie for me and my friends. But it's fucking fantastic. Yeah, and and for me, it, w- it was certainly a, a high school movie for, for me and my friends. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting because, like, you know, this movie, I remember uh, back in the... Uh, when I was in high school, they had... Um, Back when I was in high school, they, there was double packs of this and uh, Fast Times. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, yeah, and so Fast Times and this were on was uh, were on were in double packs together, and I remember watching both because I wanted to see both. And Fast Times explores the uh, predominantly high school sex versus Days to Confuse, which explores more of high school partying. 
Um, and I was certainly partying a lot more in high school than, than having sex. Uh, so, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where I inherently related to this movie more and my, and I would like, this was the kind of movie that my friends and I would be hanging out and drinking in a basement and we'd have this movie on in the background while we, you know, shared beers and, and, you know, did what, whatever kids do when they're hanging out and drinking. Um, you know, it, yeah. so yeah. I guess uh, for those who haven't seen it, basically the story of Days and Confuse, it just follows a bunch of kids on the last day of the school year. And you could kind of divide them into two sections. It's the juniors that are about to become seniors and then the eighth graders that are about to become high schoolers. And you've got both of those two groups separately and then interacting with each other. And it continues his ensemble, not specifically narrative hangout proclivities, I guess. Um, he described it as uh, he wanted to make a teenage rock and roll spree. And that's kind of exactly what this is. Well, yeah. And, you know, it's got the it's got an uh, outstanding soundtrack, uh, an outstanding cast, a group of people that later became a lot bigger. We can get deeper into that in a second. Yeah. Um, but but at, like at its core, it's very much a, it's not only a really funny comedy, um, but it's my real introduction to the idea of a hangout movie where you are spending time with the characters that are on the screen and you, it's, you know, it's a, it's a slice of life and it's a fun slice, but you know, that like it's some of the strongest character work. Uh, I, I would argue ever put to film because it's an ensemble movie where even with a very, basic amount of information given about a lot of the characters due to the direction and the performances in this, you know a lot about these people as you continue to watch it. Should we take some time right now to kind of talk about the hangout film? I mean, it depends on what you want to, I mean, sure. Like, so yeah. I, I did, I did a little bit of research on this. I, I didn't realize that it's actually Tarantino is credited with coining the term hangout film. Um, really? He was talking about Rio Bravo when he kind of, his says is one of the earliest hangout films. Uh, but then a lot of film historians and film critics have written on it. Um, I found actually a couple little things that I found interesting. Uh, there's an article called a brief history of the hangout film, which is probably the best synopsis of it that I've ever seen. Um, unlike the traditional narrative driven film, the hangout film doesn't rely on tension to maintain the interest goal oriented characters with burning wants and needs are traded for principled ones who are just trying to get by. The difference is not merely a, ma a matter of narrative strategy. It's a different view of life. And I think that's exactly what this movie is. It is, it's not just a bunch of people hanging out. It's a bunch of people who are basically hanging out to avoid all of the other normal narrative threads. You could make this movie about a teenager that's really scared about going to high school and being bullied. You could make this movie about the conflict of the star quarterback not knowing if he wants to really sign a moral clause for the school to play football. But instead, it's just about people trying to hang out and drink and hook up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do think those are all elements that are very much in the movie. But yeah, I would say it's definitely secondary to spending time with the characters for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, I, I fucking love this film. Um, you talked earlier about the cast and how many of them went on to become famous. Yeah. Certainly, Richard Linklater has a way with casting. Um, but it's you also... You want to do some... 
You want to throw out some of these cast members now? Can we do that? Absolutely. I, I just wanted to say that I think that, particularly with Dazed and Confused, the cast is bringing so much to this that even though you know so little about one of them from like a basic script level, they're bringing a lot. And Richard Linklater knows how to work with these actors to really build a full, realized, grounded world while only giving them a little bit of screen time. Yeah. So you've um, got early appearances by... Uh, Ben Affleck, who plays the uh, the bully who is who is who is held back, um, and is getting to repeat senior year and, and torture the incoming freshman all over again. And I've always said Ben Affleck's at his strongest when he's playing an asshole, uh, so he's great in this. Um, you got you Matthew. Name Ma- yeah, yeah okay, you got cool. Matthew McConaughey. Literally, like this is Matthew McConaughey's first film role. This is the thing that made Matthew McConaughey, and he yeah. comes out of the gate. This is where you get the all right, all right, all right from. Uh, I mean, Wooderson, they even talk about it on some of the documentaries I watched, but they were like, yeah, the movie wasn't totally working and we weren't totally sure about it until Matthew McConaughey stepped on set and they did that walk through the, um, uh, what do they call it? The Emporium? When he does yeah. the walk into the bar and he's just like saying hi to people. And like, that was the moment that they knew that this movie was going to work. Yeah. And those are the two biggest stars. But then on top of that, you've got um, you've got Parker Posey in there. Renee you've Zellweger. Renee Zellweger. Renee Zellweger. Not Renee Zellweger. Um, what's her name? Joey Lauren. Joey Lauren Adams. Yeah. And uh, Mila Jovovich is in there. Yep. Um, Rory Cochran, uh, who I mean, he was a an actor of this time specifically, but this is his most well known performance. Uh, Anthony Rapp, young Anthony Rapp, as well as Adam Goldberg, who plays uh, his best friend. Love him in Saving Private Ryan. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, what a stacked cast. Um, yeah, and I'm and sure there's, there's other people who are not. Yeah, there's. I mean, like you could probably name people in this all day. You got uh, another one is um, uh, Cole Hauser. The, the the villain from uh, uh, Too Fast, Too Furious, and also the guy who got arrested playing the bongo drums naked with McConaughey. That's, <laughs> this is how they became friends. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, it's a fun cast. It was a fun time. This also, there are a couple movies that I love where you just, you feel from watching the movie that it was a lot of fun to make, and this certainly was that. Um I even saw Richard Linklater said that he made each single character a cassette tape of all of the music that that character would have listened to. And that was his real, like, pre-production directing with them. And it it totally comes across. And, yeah, we should also, we should probably talk about the soundtrack because it's incredible. And Richard Linklater also had a huge part in the soundtrack. He gave up his royalties on this movie so he could get the songs that he wanted in the soundtrack. Huh. Well, good for him because that soundtrack, the soundtrack makes the movies from, you know, sweet emotion in as the opening of the day as all the cars are driving into the parking lot to, as I mentioned before, uh, Tuesday's gone when the kegs are running out and there's a bunch in between. I absolutely love it. Like, I mean, if you haven't seen Days and Confused, definitely check it out. It is, uh, unfortunately, it was not very successful at the time, even though it was given great reviews. I would say it's gone beyond a cult classic now to almost a, like, loved cherished movie certainly for the people that i know now yeah i don't know is there anything else you want to say about days and confused nick no i, th- I think we pretty much covered it it's a it, it's a it's a fantastic movie it's one of my favorites of all time 
And it remains, I would say, a pinnacle of the Hangout movie. So as I was saying, this movie um, was kind of a failure. It was an $8 million budget. It only made, or sorry, it only made $8 million on a $6 million budget, even though it was giving great reviews and stuff. That's going to be a consistent theme as we kind of run through this. Richard Linklater, though he is, I would say, especially nowadays, a little bit more well-known, generally he's been a critically successful filmmaker, but not a financially successful filmmaker. Yeah. Even though he's got such a long career. Um, well, he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't make, like, he's not, he, his function as a director isn't typically to make mega hits, right? He's not a blockbuster director. He's directed a couple films that that had some financial success for sure. But it's just not, that, it's not functionally what he does. Yeah. Like um, a super, I'd love to see a superhero movie directed by Linklater. It, it would probably be a lot of, uh, of hanging out. <laughs> Superheroes gotta hang out. He should do Justice I, League. Yeah, yeah, fuck it. But yeah, let's do it. Let's let's go. We got a lot of movies to go though. Let's keep cracking here. We're too deep. Jesus. Yeah. Well, the next movie is something I, we also got to talk about a lot because it is maybe the other end of the spectrum when it comes to a hangout movie. Before Sunrise, which is also could have qualified as maybe one of our favorite movies that we did the series for. Um, yeah. For those of you who don't know, Before Sunrise is a 1995 film. Basically, the story is a boy meets a girl on a train and convinces her to get off with him and walk around a city in Europe for about 18 hours until he has to catch a plane back to the U.S. And it just follows the two of these young people who have just met over a span of about 16 to 18 hours. And a lot of it is them just walking around a beautiful... uh, What city is it, Nick? Do you remember? Put me on the fucking spot. Is it Venice? I think it's Venice. No, Venice has water. I was. I feel like it's one of those Florence? Eastern European cities. Whatever. God they're damn wa- it! Why do we? Why did you have to say the name of the city? <laughs> they're walking out. around this beautiful European city, just talking with each other. Uh, so it is based on a real life event where Richard Linklater met a woman in a toy shop and just walked around town with her all day long, and he he basically wanted he was like you know i don't shoot guns often i've never been in a shootout i don't race cars i've never been in a car chase but i feel like my life is dramatic and i want to portray that drama on the big screen so he partnered with kim kreisen um so the film would have a strong female voice and the two of them sat down and wrote this presented it to the stars ethan hawk and julie delpy and then worked with them again on it to make this wonderful beautiful little romance hangout movie yeah so the whole thing is and this is like when it when it comes to link later in general i've always i've recommended link later to a fuck ton of people right yeah um he's one of my one of my favorite directors of all time as as we've both said a few times during this um, but you need to understand what you're getting into when you get into a Linklater movie. And so, like, the description I, I give of, of Before Sunrise is it's one of the most romantic movies ever put to film. It's a boy and a girl meet in a beautiful place and walk around and get to know each other. And that's it. That's all it is. And so you go into it knowing that your expectations are set properly and you can really enjoy what it is. But if you're going in expecting a lot of action or whatever, honestly, you're watching the wrong fucking director for the most part. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like it's, it's a, 
it, it's a absolutely wonderful movie, and yeah. I, I and I love it. it. It's a ordinary story, but it's dramatic and cinematic, and a lot of that just has to do with the fact that Richard Linklater is such a good director. For sure, and that's like the example I'll give is like there's there's a there's a scene in the movie that that sticks with me very heavily, and it's uh, it's <laughs> where they're in the record shop, um, yeah. and they're they're listening like they're listening to a record together. These are two people that obviously don't know each other; they just met. We've said that in the premise uh, a few times now, um, but it, it captures this moment of them of them listening to a song and them looking at each other and sort of. Sh- catching glances and debating not wanting to stare at the other one for too long because there's a, you know, there's an attraction there, obviously let's, we're not going to bullshit what's going on. Um, but it's, it's just such a real moment. And I love the scene so much. I've watched it hundreds of times um, just because it's capturing moments of, of reality and putting them to film. I find it be such a fascinating thing. Yeah, honestly, I've also recommended this movie to people based off of that one scene because I think it is the most real portrayal of two people falling in love ever put on screen. And it it's just little moments like that of taking something pretty ordinary and he makes it just beautiful. And the rest of it certainly helps. It's a beautiful scenery. You've got two attractive leads. Both of them are very charismatic. And unlike, you know, where we were talking about Slacker with a lot of the philosophy drops in the long monologues this never feels like it it's really well paced even though these people are having long long conversations about you know fulfillment in life and self-discovery and you know their wants and their needs you never feel like you're in a lecture hall right yeah that's the thing like i'd say ethan Hawke's character definitely waxes poetic occasionally but at the same time you buy it because of who he is as a person because you learn so much about him throughout the movie so it never feels forced those big drops help enhance the character right um yeah so this is uh, a beautiful film i would recommend it to anyway anyone um it is though the least grossing film of all time to get a sequel uh it was <laughs> A two point five million dollar budget, it made five point five million dollars gross. Um, but you know what? I love the sequel, and I'm so glad that they made it. And we can talk about that in a couple movies. Yeah, it's a, it's a few movies. So there's like five movies in between these fucking things. Yeah, dude, dude works. Dude gets a lot of stuff. So okay, we're three movies into his career. Thirty minutes in. Uh, let, let's let's go Good. quick on this one. So next up, after you know, again a giant critical success but not a big financial success he pivots to adapting the play suburbia in his 1996 movie of the same name uh the plot of suburbia is basically just a bunch of kids hanging out on the side of a 7-eleven um they are waiting on an old friend who has found some recent success as a musician to come and visit them and it's basically just uh, doesn't it take place all in like a night basically yeah it's a it's a one night movie for sure I don't know. Look, guys, I don't like this movie. Uh, I think it is a shining example of some of the things that Linklater does great, and I think it is an example of some of the times where it goes a little bit wrong, because my big problem with this movie is I don't think the characters are likable. Like, it's like you took Days and Confused, but took all of the fun energy and the relatable characters out of it, and everyone's just very 
bleak. They're being very truthful, but they're pretty depressing. Um, well, so I think that there's there's so backing up a little bit before I start getting into my own opinion here. Um, suburbia is the type of uh, so like one big thing that I know a lot of indie directors and especially directors you know that that make the kind of movies that Linklater does love to do is buy a play on film because mm-hmm. like it's a it, it's usually a pretty cheap property and it usually already has somewhat of a a base of people who enjoy the play right Zach and I have also talked uh, at, at length uh, in this podcast or not, I don't recall, but about the the, the idea that a play on film is it can only be so good, right? Yeah. Um, you, you, based on what what a, what an audience is expecting from a play in a theater versus what an audience goes to a film or movie to see are completely different once, generally speaking. And so the like, you're talking like you know not the now I'm just switching analogies, but you're talking fantasy football, right? Like you want a you want a player with a with a good ceiling and a good floor. You you make a play on film if you want your floor, but you're never gonna make uh, you're never gonna hit the ceiling, if that yeah. makes sense. If not, just cut it out. I don't know. I'm just no, talking. no, that totally makes sense. Uh, honestly, we kind of <laughs> talked about it, I think, also a little bit last week when we talked about Frank Oz, where the ending of a play, when when you're going to see it and you're sitting in the audience and you're seeing the live people in front of you, there's a level of disassociation that happens at the very end of the play and then when uh, that really helps the the viewing of the play. When it's transferred to film, at the end of the film, the movie ends, and wherever the characters are, that's where it ends, and you're left with that feeling. You never get like a little cathartic release when the cast comes out and has a bow, and everyone stands up and applauses. And I think Suburbia is just so, gosh darn, just depressing at the end. This, you know, Linklater rarely goes bleak, but this film lacks a lot of levity. Well, it's a play, you know. It, it's, it's a play. Plays can be but, a lot bleaker. I guess what I'll, what I'll say, though, is like if you're especially if you're looking at, you know, Slacker, Days of Confused and Before Sunrise, the movies that he had made so far, there are movies he also had a heavy hand in writing and characters he created and characters that he fell in love with. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is him directing characters that he didn't create. Right. Or necessarily even fall in love with. Right. And while I think he probably, you know, I, and personally, here's the thing. Uh, I'll clarify this, too. I I thought Suburbia was perfectly fine. I didn't hate it or dislike it. I just, like, watched it and was like, yeah, okay. Like, I consider it, like, average Linklater. And I don't think it could have been any better. I think it could... I don't think it could have been particularly worse either. Like, it was just... It, it was what it was. And uh, I think that that's a big difference, especially coming off of Dazed and Before Sunrise in particular, because there are characters that... that you fall in love with and, and suburbia you don't and you just end up hanging out with them and then you're gone. Yeah. No, I, I you're totally right there. I'm, I, I don't have much more to say about this. This is one of those where, you know, we, this guy has a giant filmography. This is one of the lone valleys for me in it. Um, Oh, Oh, wait, go the next few movies. Yeah. 
Um, okay. And even then, they everything has. I think in his filmography, he he dabbles in a lot of the same styles and themes, but he also has these like interesting subdivisions. And the Hangout film is certainly something he goes back to a lot. But the more um, truthful and bleached out, like gritty realism hangout film is something that he touches on once or twice i just don't think it ever works for me personally but there's yeah. certainly an audience for it and it certainly has its value somewhere theater classes no i'm just kidding <laughs> i i don't, can't imagine you would uh no I, honestly I, I think this is all right but i wouldn't recommend it to anybody that isn't like a huge link later nerd like like we are <laughs> so going on the next one is kind of his I'll call it his step into the big leagues. In 1998, he directs The Newton Boys, which is the true story of the most successful bank robbers in the United States. However, it's not a very well-known story because A, they never killed anybody, and B, they were like Texas local legends. So it's a little bit more of a regional story. You have never seen this movie, correct, Nick? Yeah, no. Okay. Never um, saw it. I mean, honestly, that's basically the plot. You've got Matthew McConaughey gets out of prison and he gets his brothers together to pull some bank robbery heists. And the brothers are Skeet Ulrich, Ethan Hawke, and Vincent D'Onofrio. And like, on paper, that sounds like a lot of fun. But it doesn't work. Honestly, this movie reminds me a lot of Young Guns, which is a, a, a ridiculous Western, but a movie that I really enjoy. I think there's a lot of fun in it. Uh, this movie has Hawk, who I think is almost miscast in the roles. Um, and then Skeet Ulrich is an actor that I really like, but he's really bad. He's playing like the youngest, naivest brother. And Skeet Ulrich is an asshole. Like, you can't really make him this like pure, innocent one. Uh, so the, uh, yeah. the casting is already a little bit wonky. Um, and then you know he's got these other movies where he's really trying to say something uh this movie just feels empty i mean uh mild spoilers Linklater ends this movie with like uh one of those synopsis of what happened to all of the major characters and then over the credits he puts a bunch of clips of the real life people being interviewed in their old age and i think that's the most interesting part about the movie is the fact that these were bank robbers that lived into their old age and kind of had this second wave of fame when they were 70 years old after they came out and said like, yeah, we're the most successful bank robbers in us history. Uh, watching them leading up and doing all the robberies is certainly entertaining. And there are some nice big set pieces, but it all just feels a little empty. And then you have these miscast actors. It just never totally gels. And I think it's one of the reasons that he kind of recessed a little bit back into his own proclivities and his own natural tendencies, because this should have been another Young Guns, another big blockbuster full of young Hollywood stars, and it just never got off the ground. That's about all I got to say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I uh, I never saw it, um, but you make it sound like something I... I well, I'm going to watch it eventually. Because I do want to be a Linklater completionist. I was going to do it for this, and then life got the best of me. So there's still two Linklater movies I've never seen. Um, uh, I, I, you know, Nick, I should clarify to you, because I'm probably being a little hard on this film. Like, I view this as just fine. I, I view it as Richard Linklater trying to make a movie that 
he's trying to make a story that he's probably pretty passionate about in a style that he isn't. And I think that's just kind of the the root of the problem of the movie. It's still, you know, it's a soft three. It's a fine afternoon watch, but, you know, especially this podcast, we're digging for those hidden gems. I don't think this is one of them. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like, it's not going to stop me from watching the damn movie, and you know? I don't care. I'm just like, you know, really when it comes down to it, there's only, there's only one Linklater movie that I actively hate, and it's the next one. Well, let's talk about it. Waking Life. Where I don't know where to start with this one. This is a movie about lucid dreaming, um, and it, go, it kind of goes back to the, the the same type of style that Slacker had, um, where it's uh, you know it, it's sort of it's vignettes and uh, it doesn't have the same exact like uh, point A to point B to point C that that Slacker's setup does. But it's a bunch of unrelated things, and it's... What's the term for the animation that they use? Uh, rotoscoping. So it's full of rotoscoping, which is a thing that Linklater likes. Um, and of the things Linklater likes, it's the thing that I hate the most. Um, yeah, this, is, this movie, this was the first experience I had watching a Linklater movie. And being and being like, I feel like I watch something pretentious as balls. It, it is <laughs> certainly that. Uh, look, we were. I wanted to make a big distinction, particularly with Before Sunrise, that the long, dense conversations, generally about religion or philosophy or whatever, when they're used to help aid your character development, they don't feel like a chore. This movie follows one guy who's wandering around and basically getting... He's meeting different people who are having these conversations generally at him. So they're just one-offs, and it doesn't really work. I mean, there's... Uh, I think particularly there is a scene where Jesse and Celine, the two characters from Before Sunrise, make an appearance in yeah. this. And they're the only ones, because I have that previous knowledge of the film... The conversation makes sense but the rest of them you've got like alex jones has a cameo where he spits some random garbage and then you go to a professor who gives you like a tutorial in string theory or relativity or whatever it's just those things that never i mean they're intentionally not connected it's supposed to feel like a fucking dream uh, yeah but it, it doesn't it, it feels like a nightmare uh, i mean it, it, to me it feels like a dream in the sense that i forget my dreams a lot <laughs> so I, I wake up and I'm I like, oh, this. I watched Waking Life last night. Um, but I, no, I, we should also I, talk about. I got. To, I, I also. I get. I. Oh, I get mad when the the when Je Jesse and and Celeste. What is that? What their Celine. names are? Celine. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Jesse and Celine forever. Um, thank you. Uh, no, Je Jesse and Celine show up, and I'm just like. Get the fuck out of this movie. What are you doing in this movie? I don't want to see you in this movie. Get in a good movie. Your movie. Like, I feel like they're... Like, I feel like he's just recycling characters. It's like... It's like when Todd Salon started doing all those movies where he just started doing the same characters of his old movies because he ran out of ideas. That's a real <laughs> deep pull, though. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. One day, eventually, we'll talk about him. 
Um, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to watch all the movies with the characters from the previous ones. There's so many movies that it's just like, hey, rem- remember happiness? I put all the characters in this and recast them all, and it sucks. Want to watch it? I don't. I don't want to watch that. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Tangents. Well, let me talk a little bit about something else I really don't like about this movie, uh, sure. which is I, I think it's called technically interpolated rotoscoping, but basically the process is he films these movies like they're movies. So Waking Life is actors on a set with lighting and things, and he is filming it. But then in post-production, what they do is they have animators draw over the film stock basically so it it gives this very weird type of animation to it which is often very fluid um and you know as you listen to this podcast more and more i i am not an animation snob i just kind of like the animation that i like and this is the opposite of it it's you know it's a messy visual style and that's always something that has turned me off of rotoscoped movies and then on top of that you're gonna layer no plot wandering narrative no really good characters and we should talk about you know we talk how this is one guy wandering from dream to dream that guy is the worst actor he is the (laughs) young kid in dazed and confused while he works in there as yeah wiley wiggins as an awkward teenager is fine but as like a 25 year old who has to kind of carry this movie and be the audience's surrogate to go through it, I think he's abysmal. And that's also another big reason why I think this movie fails in my eyes. I love Wiley Wiggins in Robert Rodriguez's The Faculty. Is he in that? Wow. Yeah, he's uh, he's the one stoner kid that uh, that Hartnett's dealing to. Yeah. It's anyway. him, it's him and, and Danny Masterson, but you can't, yeah, I mean, you don't like him anymore because he's a rapist. Well, let's move on from that. Li- is that slander or liable? I don't know. No, I'm only using alleged. Slander alleged. is spoken. Liable. Alleged. There we go. Oh. Um, let's let's talk about tape. Honestly, very few people have seen Waking Life. Uh, probably less have seen tape. Which is a shame because I love tape. Like well, I legitimately, you... I legitimately love tape. Um, yeah, and sure. this came out the same year too, which is yeah. crazy. Which is also, because, so tape is also play on film. Granted, it doesn't have to play by the same exact rules of play on film because it's a one-act play. So one-act play is kind of all bets are off, right? Yeah, because they've had to expand it. Right. So, you you know, there is, well, yeah, for sure. But when it, when it comes down to the rules that I have for plays on film and the success they can and can't have doesn't apply to one-act plays. So I can't call this one of my top three ever favorite plays on film because it's not quite the same. Um, but it's a, it's a one-act play on film. And um, it's uh, Ethan Hawke, the the guy from House, not Hugh Laurie, the other guy from... I always forget his fucking name. Jonathan something? That sounds wrong, but I don't know. He's, he also was in... Um, it could be Jonathan something, I don't know. He's, uh, he was also in uh, um, Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado About Nothing. You're not going to mention that he was in... Um... <laughs> Dead uh, Poet Society. Dead Poet Society with Ethan Hawke. Yeah, it's the Dead Poet Society guys. It's Ethan Hawke and the, and the other guy. 
I hate oh. to go on another tangent, but you know, I love Swing Kids, the movie, and he's the lead in that, and he's really good. And his name is Robert Sean Leonard. Robert Sean Leonard, that's it. It's a three-named guy. I should have said that. Um, yeah, Robert Robert Sean Leonard and, uh, uh, and Ethan Hawke um, are... The whole movie's set in a hotel room. I actually watched this movie for the first time also in a hotel room. It was like meta or whatever. It's not meta. Um, there's a word for it. I'm not, I don't know the word. It's not, it doesn't matter. You get the point. Um, it, from an atmospheric standpoint, it worked, right? I'm sitting on a hotel bed watching this movie on my fucking phone. Um, but it's, it takes place in a hotel room. Um, and uh, Ethan Hawke and Robert Sean Leonard are old friends meeting up for the first time. Um, and then an old, I like, I literally don't want to give things away about this movie because like, it's, um, like, I, I feel, I feel like if I reveal too much, it's going to kind of ruin the twists and turns that the movie has. Um, Here, but I, Uma, I, Uma Thurman in. gets involved. In. Yeah, sure. Let me tag in. So Ethan Hawke and, um, Robert Sean Leonard are old friends who are meeting, uh, Ethan Hawke has invited Robert Sean Leonard over to his hotel room for them to drink and hang out unknown to Robert Sean Leonard at the time Ethan Hawke is inviting Uma Thurman who used to be Ethan Hawke's ex-girlfriend over and from there they all three meet and there are a shit ton of it's just a shit ton of drama and conflict. there's drama yeah, yeah. Well, no, but I like that's the thing is there's something about the you know this is another movie with kind of a unit set right if you compare it to to suburbia where it's all the majority of the movie takes place at one or two locations like this is pretty much all in this uh, hotel room and it's you know it's a pretty short movie it's a quick watch for sure but at the same time I think they they pack some interest like I find the characters to be interesting um and i think that the drama is is very strong and yeah like i was glued to this from beginning to end absolutely i i'll say this i'm i'm not as big of a fan of this movie as you i certainly think um i would put it in that niche sub sub genre of linklater's career with suburbia even though this is a much better version of it it is still a hangout movie it is still dark and bleak and really all about that gritty realism but this is a successful version of it, I think. I also, if we're going to talk uh, here while I'm sitting here looking at these movies, is this the most tense thing he's ever made? I would say probably by a large margin. Yeah. Like, considering that Linklater is such a king of... of, of hanging out and character driven pieces and that sort of thing. This one that, that has a lot of drama and a lot of tension is a really interesting thing to see from him as well. Um, and I, I don't want to give away too many things, but like, I, I think it wouldn't be too wrong to say like, there are Hitchcockian elements to this. There's definitely some things that are reminiscent of like early Coppola films. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on here. Um, God, I just want to kind of talk about some of the twists. I, 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 because it's a movie that I feel like most people haven't seen, I'd, I'd ask us not to. So I'll say because, this. Like, I, I can't sell this movie hard enough. Like, this is, if there, if you come out of this podcast with anything, anything, it's that you need to watch tape. <laughs> and that you don't need to look up the plot before you go into it. That's true. I actually knew very little about this before I started. I just threw it on. I had, 
before I watched it, I looked it up just because you would put it on the list and I was kind of curious. Like I, I did like a brief scan of the Wikipedia page. Like it's called Tape, which is a weird title for a little hotel room drama. It's very apparent why that is such a large factor. But it also, it's kind of a movie that I would say is pretty prescient now, maybe even more so than it was in 2001. Yeah, I, yeah I'll go with that. That's it. Tape was another movie that no one saw. Didn't make a lot of money. Um, but it oddly, this tense, dark movie led to what I think you could maybe argue is his lightest and most successful film. Yeah, I mean, certainly. Uh, that would be 2003's School of Rock. Yeah, and it's kind of out there, right? Like, in the sense that, you know, Linklater, someone with the filmography that he has so far, why he would take on, uh, you know, this this Zach, uh, this, Zach Black, <laughs> this Jack Black, uh, you know, musical comedy. Um, and... Really the big thing, and I saw some interviews about this as well, where, you know, Jack Black had said um, that they were really looking for uh, a director that had a strong sense of realism. Um, And they wanted it, they were very nervous when looking at the script that the film was going to come off like a caricature, like a lot of comedies around that time sort of felt like. So they Mm -hmm. wanted Linklater's grounded uh, ability as a filmmaker to make the movie believable from beginning to end. And I'll be honest, I think that's part of the strength of this movie. Yeah, he reigns Jack Black in perfectly. Um, I I don't know. I feel like enough people know High Fidelity, but Jack Black's persona in High Fidelity, it's taking that character and fleshing him out and making him much more real you've still got all of jack black's manic energy he's really playing to almost every strength that jack black has linklater really had to force him back and you know there you're always tweaking the script as the movie goes along but a lot of uh these sections some of them were improvised with jack black working with the kids and linklater was hands-on reining him in and i i I think that's why it works yeah absolutely we should talk about, I mean, a lot of people at least know the premise of School of Rock, um, but I think one of the great things about it is all of the kids in the movie all have an individual moment, and they're all identifiable, which is something that I think you lose in some other family, large kid ensemble movies. Yeah. Um, and they also all have really good chemistry with Jack Black. Yeah, they did, and, and Jack, Jack Black is, you know was very good with them in the movie. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. Each, each individual kid sort of has their own thing. And I'll say this, each kid has their I agree own with thing. You. I, yeah, this is a movie that I, I don't really see anyone hating this movie. It's light. It's funny. Um, the jokes really stand up and, you know, through the test of time. And it's so specific into the rock genre that like, there are a couple, like, if you rewatch it, there are a couple little gold mines that you'll certainly miss the first time. Um, speaking of the rock history, that was another thing. Linklater was very adamant that if he was going to make this movie, that they would have to hire kids who could really play the instruments and sing the songs. That makes and sense, that, yeah. It certainly comes through in the performances, but it also certainly makes his job a lot easier because he's able to do so many more things with his camera because he's not trying to have to hide kids faking playing instruments yeah no that's that that's a good point 
Um, and um, the kids are very good. I mean, like the the music that that is produced within the film is is very strong. Yeah, it's real fun. Um, I mean, this movie's got everything. It's got laughs. It's got rock music. It's got Jack Black. I mean, that's all you need. Whatever. It's got Joan Cusack singing Stevie Nicks. It's got. Uh, I do love a good Joan Cusack. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's got Sarah Silverman being a jerk. I don't know. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen this, absolutely go check it out. I feel like most people saw it. So this was a $35 million movie that made $131 million. Uh, making it his best earner it's also spawned a broadway musical a short-lived tv show and i'm pretty sure that a lot of the kids in the film have like i don't think it's a band but like i think they do performances together huh well and and then some of them have gone on to have you know young actor careers some of them have like released eps um the one girl used to hang out in chicago and, and sing at trader todd's yes she did but I got nothing else. I mean, School of Rock is an outlier in his filmography for many different reasons. The family aspect of it is one. The the de- uh, deliberate musical aspect is another one. Not just like a great soundtrack, but the fact that... I mean, originally the script was going to be a full-fledged musical. And then they kind of toned that back. And the fact that it earned over $100 million. Another one. Outlier in his filmography. Uh, but the success of this did give him carte blanche to do his next film, which was the nine years later sequel to Before Sunrise, 2004's Before Sunset. Yeah, Before Sunset. Good movie. The The premise next. is before uh, the, the two main characters from Before Sunrise meet again nine years later. That's it. That's what it is. Yeah. That's, what, uh, that's all that needs to be said, like, in terms of plot. I think that's all that needs to be said. That's it, yeah. They're, um... <laughs> Ethan Hawke is back in... He's in Paris on a book tour, and Celine goes to see him speak, because he's written a book about the plot of Before Sunrise. Um, so then these people who clearly had a wonderful attraction and just spent one amazing night together are meeting nine years later and they walk around Paris and they wax poetically more about philosophy and their lives and love and marriage. And life. And, uh, you know, the idea behind it too, of, you know, it, it, it shows kind of a, you know, differences between what the philosophy of somebody, um, you know, at age 21 is versus at age 29. I don't know their ages, but um, like, you know, the obvious nine years later, how someone's life philosophy can change in that span. Cause for most people it does. Right. Yeah. Um, you're talking about the difference between your twenties and your thirties in mindset and views, but also it's this wonderful thing where he's given these two characters a chance to how do i say this without having too many spoilers um he's given these people a second chance in their meeting again and (laughs) fuck okay you know what (laughs) spoilers spoilers for before sunset skip ahead by like three minutes so at the end of before sunrise ethan hawk's gonna go 
and fly back to the U.S. and Celine has to get on her train and they decide that they are going to meet up in one year's time or six months time or whatever, but they're going to meet again at the exact same spot in the exact same city. Nine years later, this movie starts with them never having met up again and now these two people get to interact. And not only are they talking about, you know, that one night and the connection they had, they're talking about how their lives are now, whether they're happy with the way it's gone, whether they have regrets about not only that night and not meeting up, but the way that, you know, whether this would have been better than the current relationships they're in, things like that. And the movie ends... Skip again! It's been two minutes! Skip again! Zach's still going! Hey, you the good. Movie Keep going. ends with them very... You could call it ambiguously not sure where their relationship is going to go. Whether Ethan Hawke is going to get on a plane to fly back to the U.S. or if he's going to fucking stay in Paris with this woman he met once nine years ago, but they had such an intense attraction. Oh, see, I, I'd, ar I'd, ar I'd argue the ending's not ambiguous. Well, so here's what I want to bring up. Because the studio pushed back so fucking hard on this. They wanted this movie to end with the two of them kissing, and Linklater basically just put his dick on the table and was like, fuck no. Um, there's a the really fun interview where the studio was pressuring Ethan Hawke to get Linklater to change it. And Ethan Hawke basically just lied to the studio and said like, yeah, 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 no, no, no. I talked to him and, you know, he's really, really considering putting in that kiss. And I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think it's ambiguous. It's not ambiguous at all. Like, I think it's ambiguous to like dolts. Like <laughs> and especially now that you know that there's a movie nine years later called Before Midnight, clearly he fucking stayed. Um. Well... I don't know. It could have been another chance meeting. I don't know. We'll get to it. Now I don't know what spoilers and not spoilers, so now I'm fucking confused. Well, I um, hope you're just joining us back from that spoiler break on Before Sunset. Uh, hopefully the, my yelling told you to skip to this point. The only thing gonna... I, I think I should say is this, is, um, this was originally my least favorite of the whole trilogy. And it, I think it slowly eked its way up to my favorite. That's interesting. Yeah, it's weird, especially the, the second one in this kind of a Hangout trilogy. And it, he really is telling one large, giant story. But uh, I, I, I rewatched this one, and there's ooh, there's something about it. See, like, I like all three of them. Like, I put them all on the same level. I, like, I, it's so hard to rank them for me because they're just so much an experience. Yeah. I mean, in all, general, all three of these are fives for me. Yeah, same. But yeah, that um, th that's just interesting. So before Sunset came out in two thousand four, it again was not financially successful. Um, you don't have to keep saying it. We know. We know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but next, uh, after this really touching and personal continuation of a beautiful little indie movie nine years after its original he makes a left turn he had to suck the cock of the studio gods yeah and he did oh in 2005 we got the bad news bears remake yeah, and the thing about the original Bad News Bears is, like, the Bad News Bears sort of lays the foundation, the original Bad News Bears sort of laid the foundation for what ultimately became the family sports films of the 90s. You know, your, your group of misfit kids and uh, coach who 
probably shouldn't be coaching any kids, let alone misfit kids. Um, and you know, them, them coming together, lovable losers coming together and, and outperforming expectations. Um, and so it's such an influential film to remake it is dumb to remake it after the year 2000 is even worse because the thing, one of the things about the original is the original is a film that has, uh, a lot of things that you can't put in family films anymore. And so like you've got, cause in the original you've got, you know, there's definitely some, there's definitely some casual racism in it. There's definitely uh, a lot of swearing. There's uh, you know, the, the coach is a drunk who passes out on the mound during practice at one point. Um, there's some interesting stuff with, with gender dynamics and sports and that sort of thing. It's a lot of stuff that's, it's pretty touchy. And this movie doesn't cut it out completely but they cut out enough of it where it's not going to please fans of the original and it's not going to work as a family film this is a pg-13 movie like so like why why make it why make it why make it i can tell you why make it because bad santa was a success and this was a property that they thought they could just kind of have a easy layup because you got Billy Bob doing the exact same thing. Billy Bob's a dick to kids. Apparently America went crazy for that. And they were like, well, this is a property people know. We can have him being a dick to kids. Yeah, but like the like Bad Santa's... I'm not even a huge fan of Bad Santa. But Bad Santa, there's more to the movie than just him being a dick to kids. <laughs> oh, I'm in 100% agreement with you. I'm just saying, like, from a studio perspective, like, that's how no, they sold this movie. I know. I'm still allowed to be mad about it, Zach. All right? Be mad. Rage, Nick. Rage. This is, like, here's the thing. Like, I watched this movie and I was like, well, this wasn't good. It's still, I didn't hate it as much as Waking Life because it it had a plot. But, like, I don't know. Thinking about it now, I kind of hate it more. I don't know. It's, they had a a wheelchair kid because that's great. I don't know what else there is to say. It's, it's It's a neutered version of a classic that doesn't even share many of the same qualities. Yeah, it's just bad. It's a waste of fucking time. You know what? This is the worst one. This is the worst one. Damn it, Rich. I get it. You were just collecting a paycheck, but still. You're breaking my heart. The man does love baseball. Yeah. Well, maybe it's like the it's like when uh, Gus Van Sant remade Psycho because he was just like, someone's gonna fucking do this. I might as well do it, and you know, then at least I won't hate it as much when someone does it. I mean, th- honestly, I wouldn't put it past Richard Linklater. He's kind of that kind of guy. Yeah, but I still hate it, Zach. Yeah. All right, let's pick up uh, next with. 2006's Fast Food Nation. Uh, if I can kind of give like a little brief synopsis for you, because um, I think this is one of his lesser known ones. Um, so this is loosely based off of a nonfiction investigative journalistic book. Basically, 
it was made right around the time of uh, or following the Super Size Me, where a lot of people were kind of. I, I think there was another one, not Idiocracy, but or Freakonomics or something was right around the same time too, where they were trying uh, studios were trying to adapt things from um, investigative journalistic books, particularly about Food, the, Food Inc. Food Inc. was also around this time as well. Yeah, there was a the little craze where this was popular, and um, this explores a lot of themes. Um, that were in a failed pilot written or directed by Linklater. It was one that he tried to sell to HBO and it never worked out. So we kind of took some of the elements from that and found this book and kind of meshed the stuff together. Um, so it does have, I'll call it a semi-linear narrative um, that's yeah. really exploring the different levels of fast food from the poor high schooler that serves you your burger all the way to the slaughterhouse where you get your burger. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it, it's one where uh, it's it's not quite a... I mean, it's, I wouldn't describe this as a Hangout movie by any means. This is a movie with, mm -mm. A, with a very, very clear message. Um, and at the same time, it does explore a lot of different characters... Um, that are kind of, you know, loosely affiliated one way or another with this world. For me, in this particular movie, the the message comes out a little bit stronger than the characters do. Um, and so I find the movie to be... While I didn't hate it by any means, I find it to be kind of forgettable. Kind of forgettable is exactly how I would describe this movie. Um, I... I... I think for me, the message actually is the thing that doesn't stick with me as much as maybe some of the characters. Uh, oddly enough, like really the, oh, I watched this movie because you put it on the list. I watched it, I don't know, maybe like three years ago. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I can't remember his name. Uh, Fez. Yeah, Wilmer Valdemarama. Thank it you. Was the, it was the subplot that involves the migrant workers. That was the only one that really has stuck with me. Um, and he's got a lot of like big names. Like he's working. He brought Ethan Hawke back, but he's got uh, Bruce Willis in there. No, um, it's a, it's an all star cast for sure, and a lot of them are in roles that you don't really remember afterwards. Yeah, it, again, it's just a forgettable movie. I would say like you know, if that is if this is something you're passionate about, certainly check it out. Uh, I mean, I would rather watch this than watch one of the documentaries about it or watch Super Size Me. But yeah, it, it's. Uh, I can't even, I can't really call it a blemish on his filmography. It's just kind of one of those that exists. It's something he's passionate about that didn't translate well for me. Yeah, like, I think it's fine. It's just, yeah, it, it's it's average Linklater. And I, I think it's, you know, especially when you make films the way that Richard Linklater does, that are, you know, so character driven. And it, it's going to lend itself to have movies like this that end up feeling a lot more forgettable because... If you don't relate to the characters consistently, it's not going to work. So yeah, I, I consider this—I consider this one to be a, a. I found it to be a fine watch, but it's not anything I've put a lot of thought into since I saw it. So I haven't seen the next one, Nick, because um, he follows this up the same year, a little bit later. He does uh, Scanner Darkly. Yeah, is another rotoscope movie. It's based on the novel by Philip K. Dick. I'm familiar a little bit with the story, but I've never seen the movie. Yeah, and I, I'll be honest, I haven't seen it in a while. If I, it, I, For some reason, I thought you were watching it for this, so I didn't brush up on it a lot, so fucking whoops. 
Yep. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I, I just, I don't like rotoscoping enough that like, it turns me off of all rotoscope movies. Um, I, I it's just, uh, it's too visually ugly for me to really watch, even though I think, you I, know, Philip K. Dick's stories generally make good movies. I, I just don't, the, I, I don't, I don't like the medium. The rotoscoping in this, I, I recall being a lot less distracting than waking life. Um, so yeah, it's a, a story of an undercover cop in a not too distant future becomes involved with a dangerous new drug and begins to lose his identity as a result. Um, yeah, the, the cop is played by uh, Keanu Reeves. Uh, if I recall, one of his friends is Robert Downey Jr. He also got Winona Ryder and Rory Cochran in the other main roles in this. And um, Woody. Woody's his other buddy, uh, his two roommates. It's Downey Jr. and Woody. Yeah, yeah. Which, Woody um, Harrelson, you think someone who would work with Linklater a lot, and I think this is his only movie. Yeah, no, it's kind of strange, because you got, like, McConaughey and Woody sort of, you know, in theory go hand in hand, but... Um, I don't, Though McConaughey hasn't worked a ton with... Uh, he's worked with him more than once, though. I don't know. Yeah, he, he um, got him later on. I do think the fact that this is the only Keanu Reeves Linklater movie is telling. Like, Keanu was interviewed a lot, uh, especially for the Linklater doc that I watched, and I just kind of get the sense that their styles don't gel, which was another knock why I didn't watch this movie for this, because I was just like, I don't... Keanu Reeves doing Philip K. Dick, post-Matrix. I feel like this was a little bit more, like, studio casting than Linklater casting. Well, because also if you look at Keanu Reeves, you know... Because Keanu Reeves has two very different, you know, there's the early Keanu Reeves, which is the the fun, dumb guy, right? That's what he was cast as early in his career. And then later on, he became an action star, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But, like, it's not like you ever really go to Keanu Reeves for, you know, a, a super realistic performance, right? Like, it's not, he's not an actor's actor. He's... My understanding is Keanu Reeves is a very hardworking person who, and I know it's tough to say bad things about Keanu Reeves, but like Keanu Reeves isn't a great actor, right? Yeah. Like, is anyone going to argue Keanu Reeves is a great actor? I wouldn't. Uh, he seems like a great dude. and he's, he's a good movie star. Very likable, but like Linklater needs good need strong actors with the way his stories are structured. And if I recall, Keanu Reeves in a scanner darkly was a big issue for me as well. Um, is this a little bit, uh, I hate to kind of invoke waking life again, but uh, easy comparisons. Is this kind of like another Wiley Wiggins situation where your lead just can't hold the movie? Keanu did not hold the movie for me. No. Um, now at the same time, you know, there's, there's like, there's like a lot of stuff that gets into this, especially with the the way, like when someone uses the drug within the movie, there's like hallucinations, which visually look kind of interesting with the rotoscoping and that sort of thing. And I, if I recall, that's what a lot of people like about this movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. This movie was, I, I found it to, to have kind of a weak leading performance from Keanu. And then um, the, to me, the story didn't, move at a what i considered a reasonably good pace so it was just kind of a slow it was slow for the style of movie that it was and 
it's kind of visually weird. So yeah, I, I never really connected with this one. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like you're just not. I love Richard Linklater, but I hate rotoscoping more. You're, I'm probably like I'm probably not going to be a completionist because I don't want to sit through a scanner darkly. Well, talk to me about me and Orson Welles. I haven't sat through that one. Okay, so coming off of uh, a scanner darkly, this is a weird turn. Me and Orson Welles. Uh, let me give you the basic plot. So it's a young aspiring actor is literally plucked off of the street by Orson Welles back when he was just a theater director. This is pre-Citizen Kane. Um, and he's performing in the inaugural production of Julius Caesar at the um, famous Mercury Theater. For you non-theater people, this is like a... Uh, prominent production in theater history and the mercury theater was a, also a very prominent theater in theater history um for those of you who are familiar with orson welles and war of the worlds that was a radio play that was put on one year later at the mercury theater um so we're talking very niche history but this is you know that's the world we're playing in he chose something very significant and julius caesar being their first production was also one of the things that Orson Welles was already pretty famous, but this, like, skyrocketed him. This was one of the most lauded theatrical productions in New York City. So, oddly enough, Richard Linklater really gets all of that. Like, this is certainly a theater movie for theater people. Um, it, it really captures all of the little lovely eccentricities of a live show, um, particularly in the rehearsal and just the theater scene. Um, it's really big in its scale. Um, visually, it's decadent. Um, it, it, it's a lovely little period piece, which is something you don't expect from Richard Linklater. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, the problem is that young aspiring actor is Zac Efron. But Zac Efron, back when he, he was still shooting High School Musical, basically, Richard Linklater is the person that kind of like helped nudge him into more serious roles. Huh. Uh, and you can tell, because he's uh, he's the real weak spot of the movie. Um, opposite him, also, you have Christian McKay, who is not a well-known actor, but he's definitely a that guy. He pops up here and there. Uh, Nick, you would be familiar with him. He is the fat friend in um, I Met With You. Okay. A real deep pull. But that that's, movie's that movie's terrible. That's where I know him from. But he's also, um, you know, he did a one-man show playing Orson Welles, which is where Linklater saw him and pulled him straight from this casting. And I think he does a really good job as Orson Welles. But I also think, you know, maybe this movie would have been a little bit more successful if they would have had a little bit more well-known actor in there. But overall... It's still a nice movie. Like, this is a solid three for me. Um, okay. It's got, you know, a familiar trope. It's that outsider's point of view into a significant historical figure and a significant historical time. It certainly is not for everyone because it's a very niche historical time, it being, you know, almost forgotten theater history, unless you, like, are really, really into theater history. Uh, it's pre-Citizen Kane, Orson Welles, so even the historical person is not, you know, it's a weird time for that. Um, 
But I don't know. I still enjoy it. I still think it's just a capital N nice movie. Cool. Well, yeah, I'll watch it sometime. Yeah, it's not bad. Now, um, I, I guess the next um, we can talk about uh, he takes a little bit of a break. And part of that had to do with the fact that me and Orson Welles was, again, like a, a larger scale movie that was a big flop. Well, now we're moving into the Killer Bees. The next three movies all start with the letter B. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, this is... If we're going to talk about this, um, one of the things that I pegged... We generally are covering journeyman directors, but with those larger auteurs, um, a lot of film criticism will talk about the imperial phase. Uh, I was just watching Patrick H. Willems did a great two-part video series on Coppola and talking about where he had his... Linklater is one of those guys because he has flown so far in just the indie radar and off the main populace radar. It's kind of hard to actually give him that label of the Imperial phase, but this would be it, is the Killer Bees. Uh, and it starts with 2011's Bernie. Which Zach is going to talk about. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I like this movie. I'm not, but you said you were, ta- I was talking to you earlier today. You said you rewatched it and you fell in love with it. So like, go man, this is yeah. you. This is I all was, you. I was going to give you a little bit of time, but okay. Yeah. Basically uh, Jack Black is like, Hey Rick, I want to make school of rock too. And Rick goes, Hey Jack, I've got this script instead about a guy who murders his wife. And they went, all right, sure. Better than nothing. Um, but it, it is based on a true story. Um, in fact, Richard Linklater was uh, friends with the real-life killer, Bernie. Uh, yeah, like... hosting yeah. him in his house while yeah, he was on probation. Together. Yeah, <laughs> They fucking live together. Uh, but, but the story is really... Um, it reminds me almost of like a Mike Judge movie. It, it's uh, regionalism. Um, it's a regionalism that I've certainly never heard of. They talk about it. It's the Pine Curtain. Are you familiar with this, Nick? No. Apparently the Pine Curtain, it's an area of East Texas. Um, but they do a lot of, uh, it never feels like shoe leather, but like they certainly set it up a lot at the beginning. Um, Cause the whole movie is told with these like fake talking head, direct to camera interviews with different townspeople um, around the story. All of them are played by actors or i believe most of them are played by actors but they're the ones that are giving you clues not only into who the characters in the main story are but also the town that it takes place in and so there's a lot of really specific humor that comes across really really well in this style particularly when you're dealing with i mean the pine curtain neither of us have really ever heard of it so it does really help immerse you in this world and i think it's really smart um the other thing is, I remember this was billed a little bit more as, like, a serious movie. Because um, it is Jack Black doing some really, really solid acting. Um, this was also right around the time of the Reconnaissance. Like, Bernie is often considered one of the movies in the Reconnaissance. So, this was kind of set up as, like, a dramatic movie. But really, it's just a dark Turk comedy about... The Reconnaissance, you're referring to the Renaissance of Matthew McConaughey, right? I am, yes. Okay, cool. Just clarifying for, for, for any listeners who didn't uh, know Read what that the reconnaissance meant. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, I actually if I if I may for one second here, um mm-hmm. if I recall when I when I like when I first saw this movie, I remember being like, Holy shit, I didn't know Jack Black could act like that. Like this was Jack Black has always 
been a solid leading man. Um, and I think he's a, he's a really funny and I've always found to be a genuinely earnest actor, but he is frequently playing Jack Black and I love Jack Black playing Jack Black. This was the first time I ever watched a movie and I was like, I, while watching it, I wasn't like, oh, that's, uh, that, that's Jack Black. I was like that, like the character of Bernie is who I was watching. So, yeah. He really does, uh, he disappears into this character, which is the first time he's really ever done that. At least, uh, at least from what I've seen. But then you also yeah. have Shirley MacLaine, who's kind of doing like her Shirley MacLaine bit. She is a little stick in the mud, an old crotchety woman. And Jack Black warms her heart a little bit, but then their marriage goes awry. And there's a lot of, you know, comedy between the two of them and stuff. But I cannot stress enough the way that he structures this film with these talking head testimonials that's where most of the humor comes from and that's where i was laughing so much on this rewatch you know dark comedies can be hit and miss for people i think because he sets it within this like very specific place and does such a good job of grounding it in that place and really kind of opening up the world um of the movie I think it works incredibly well. It's really effective. And I would say that I think most people, if they were to give it a shot, would find it funny. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I need to do, give it a rewatch to be honest. It's a, it's a, I recall it's a good movie. So yeah. Party on. Yeah. Um, so after this, you know, uh, B2, 20, B2, 2013's before midnight, uh, nine years after before sunset which was nine years after before sunrise we now yeah, have it's... completed the lowest grossing trilogy of all time i wonder is it is it going to be like the up series where there's going to be another one in nine years honestly i we're approaching it i kind of wish they would just because i love these characters so much it's yeah. funny i i hope they i like i you know part of me, like my initial reaction is i hope they fucking don't do that but at the same time, if it's still the two of them and it's still Linklater, yeah, I'll watch it all day. Oh, yeah. they. I mean, they would never make this movie without those three. Uh, no, I know. But that's what I mean. Like, I, I'm saying, generally speaking, I'd expect someone to fuck it up. But but with the people involved, I, I don't think I don't think they would make it unless it was good. So um, let me ask you this. Just kind of right off the top, Nick, uh, to go into this plot, give spoilers for the previous movie. Are you okay with doing your little spoiler warning? I can kind of do a little brief plot synopsis and then talk in vagities as best I can. No, I mean, no, I'd say, I would say, uh, I would say if, you know, if you haven't watched the first two, um, yeah, skip ahead like five to 10, eh, 10 minutes, eh, just skip ahead for a little bit. Um, and you know what? Like you know, spoilers are life, man. Like fuck off. Like it, it, <laughs> Turn off the podcast and listen to the rest after you watch this series. You should anyway. Let's just talk spoilers. Who gives a shit? Yeah, so nine years after Jesse has missed his plane, uh, we find uh, Jesse and Celine are married with kids, and they are uh, basically taking a couple's night off. And as they do, they do what they do. They walk around a beautiful European city. This time we're somewhere in, I think, Greece in the Mediterranean. Um, and basically, instead of the budding romance and philosophical talk, this is them still doing that, but really they're assessing the 
past nine years of their lives together. And um, this movie broke me. Uh, oh, I think yeah. From a technical level, it is exactly what you get with the first ones. It's, you know, something that only Richard Linklater can do with his uh, long takes, his dense conversations, um, his beautiful scenery, his incredible realism from these two actors. So, good movie. Technically, good movie. On top of that, you lived with these characters through two iterations over 18 years of their life. This is now over 27 years of their life and oh my god this movie uh, well here's if i may for a second here part of the one of the major factors here as well is because if you're looking at the transition from before sunrise to before sunset you are not seeing anything when it comes to their interactions that like the like that they aren't experiencing in real time there because because they don't interact between before sunrise and before sunset yes uh, in before between before sunset and before midnight they've spent nine years together and that's a very important distinction because in the first two movies the very first two movies are very much a fairy tale like it's reality but it's it's the it's the wonderful early fairy tale stage of a relationship this is when the fairy tale is over and the problems they have are no different than the problems anyone else experiences and so that that hits you as an audience member especially if you love those first two movies really hard because it, the first two movies are so sweet and genuine and this is too but at the same time they're more acutely aware of each other's faults. They know what's, you know, the, the intimate details of one another at this point. And you as the audience member get to watch and fucking learn. And yeah, I, I, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking, but it's also still really sweet and genuine as well. And there's some wonderfully nice moments in there too. Um, Zach and I watched this movie and then cried on a roof together. Uh, uh, maybe we should set that up just a little bit. Um, no. No context. Eliminated. No, go ahead. <laughs> so uh, we watched this movie in our mid-20s. Um, we, or Sorry, we watched this series in our mid-20s. Um, and certainly as both of us, I think, related with Jesse, played by Ethan Hawke, a lot. And there's also something, you know, the first movie is certainly a movie about your 20s. And the second one, uh, again, is like a fairy tale of the, you know, what if you got that second chance with that one-time connection type of thing. Um, There's still, you know, a lot of conflict dealing with the fact that Ethan Hawke is married and has a kid in the second movie. But this one you're seeing i don't want to say someone idealized but you're seeing an idealized version of a character you love really having all of the hard choices of life beat them down and it's not anything that's overly dramatic it's never anything that feels too grand in its fictitiousness 
it's just, you know, it's a guy that you really, really liked who you believe he really, really loves this woman and you see that woman start to slip away from him and him really struggle to hold on to her. And it's heartbreaking. Like, I, I cannot stress enough that, you know, we had watched the first two movies and given a little bit of breathing room before we watched this one. I, I would say maybe it was almost a year later we caught up with Before Midnight. So we'd lived in this relationship for an extended period of time and then to see Before Midnight and see it just completely fall apart is devastating not yeah. only for just them being good characters but for the emotional attachment that both of us had put on these characters um I, 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 I hate to say this but like yes absolutely go watch these movies i would say give it some breathing room in between all three of them because i think well, yeah. the movies are enhanced by you being able to live with the characters for a little bit but also i i gotta say like you know after the third one like you're kind of wrecked. Well, I, I recommended, like, you know, I don't want my girlfriend to watch Before Midnight. I, I told her this because I was like, you know, you're, you're just going to hate the idea of marriage and happily ever after and everything. It, it's it's so depressing. In, but it's you know, so the real and it's way. so good. And, but, like, at the same time, like, there's, there's elements of it that are uplifting as well. And it's, yeah, it, it hits hard, especially in comparison to the other two. But, like... It's it's so fucking real. All of them are so fucking real. And that's why it works. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, you definitely don't want to... Uh, you don't want to do the before trilogy marathon in one day. Because one, you'll lose your fucking mind. But two, because, uh, you know, it's it, it does behoove you to space them out for sure. Uh, to give them a little bit of time to breathe and digest in between each other. Um, yeah, and, you know, the nine years in between each one of them, it lets the characters breathe a little bit. And you make a really good point about, like, this is the first one between Before Sunset and Before Midnight is where they've been living together. And I just can't stress enough how much it meant to me not only to see these characters back again and to learn a little bit more about their lives after the high of them finally getting together but then to see really like I, I won't say it's the first crack in their relationship but the first really big crack in their relationship is so personally identifiable even if it's not the same exact circumstances it's one of those things richard linklater captures two people falling in love on film the best in the first one and i think he captures two people starting to fall out of love perfectly in this one as well Yeah. So let's move on. I don't know. I'm 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 depressed just thinking about it. I rewatched Before Sunrise and Before Sunset to prepare for this, and I loved it. Like it was one of those like 1 a.m. I'm drinking a little bit. I want to go visit my friends Jesse and Celine, and I put on the first like 15 minutes of this movie, and I had to turn it off and just go to sleep because I couldn't handle it. I w I rewatched the ending for this. You are oh you, oh just the ending that's brutal. Yeah. Oh, I, I really I, like the ending. I, I couldn't do it. I I will watch like you know I'll, even just on YouTube like I'll throw on like the car ride scene or the dinner scene like or uh, them walking down that street. It's great, but as soon as they get to the time machine and the table on the dock, <laughs> I'm I'm done. I'm oh yeah. 
So Before Midnight is a wonderful movie, but it's in that category of movies that'll just devastate you. Yeah. But you know what? Sometimes it's nice to feel shit. Yeah. B3. Oh, wait, hold on. No, I have to go back and say, like, so again, you got the context of that we were very invested in these characters and we had given them time and we finally caught back up with them and then this ending happens. We were both smoking a lot at the time. So we went up to our roof which was in a bad neighborhood, so we didn't want to smoke out on the front stoop. So we went out on the roof, and it happened to rain, and we had just seen it, and that's why we were up on a roof crying in the rain. Context. Oh. Well, yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound as weird. Yeah, that was the point. Right. Um, but it was still a very poetic thing for us to do. Uh, yeah. So next is the last B-movie, Boyhood, in 2014. This is probably, I would say, we're his name got into the uh i don't want to call it the zeitgeist but his name became a little bit more recognizable because this was such an oscar contender and because even this was his first this was his first best picture nominee correct yes actually Uh, his his only his only yeah and even though you had the three before movies doing the you know spaced out timing they were all you know, one movie filmed at one time, and then it just happened to be that everyone came back again. This movie is spread out through 12 years where they would just film like a couple weeks every year. So it was a huge gamble of a project, but also, you know, it got a lot of publicity for the unusual way that it was made. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you hear something like that, I think there's there's a general, at least in my head, there's a general view of like, oh, well, this might have been just like a fucking gimmick. Um, and it, this wasn't. It, it served the story for what it was. Um, it's it's definitely a hangout movie, slice of life, whatever you want to call it, for sure. Um, there's conflict in it, but, uh, you know, it's the, it's the, sli- it's a slice of life of, you know, you're watching a kid grow up on film, right? Yeah. Um, at the, at the same time, I think it's, it's the right type of project for Linklater to take because there's a lot of care and love put into the characters of this movie. They're imperfect, but interesting people. And yeah, I, I enjoyed this from start to finish. I remember a a few people at the time, especially, and this is what happens a lot when you get a movie that is a best picture front runner that gets really hyped. You start getting a decent amount of people that, that start watching it that don't, they don't understand the type of filmmaker that, that Linklater is. You just don't this understand. Is, well, no, but it's like it, it, Linklater, as I've said, and I said it earlier in this in this recording as well, <laughs> when you're going into a Linklater movie, you need to know what you're getting into, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be a, a movie that's very character-driven. It doesn't have a ton of, uh, you know, hardcore drama. The plot's going to be light, and you're going to just sit there and enjoy what is presented to you for what it is. And a lot of people I talked to were like, yeah, I mean, it just, I don't know, it was kind of boring. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I, that, that fair, I get that. And, you know, if you're bored by movies that have light plot, this is not a filmmaker. You should have stopped listening to this podcast like an hour ago. Um, you know, because that's what, that's generally speaking what he does. But I thought this was a, this was a great movie. I, I agree with you. I think it's a great movie. I think, you know, if nothing else, the curiosity of how it was made is something that warrants a viewing. For me, I I actually know I end up a little mixed on this, mainly because the the main actor that you see grow up from ages what is it 
Is it eight to eighteen? Is it six to eighteen? I don't know. Uh, it's six. It's six to eighteen. It's twelve years. Yeah. Um. I, unfortunately, you know, this kid actor doesn't grow into a good adult actor in my mind. Um, which will not it's break. It's a swing you take. <laughs> yeah, it's a swing you take. It's not a movie that breaks. I mean, it's not something that breaks the movie. It's just certainly a knock against it. For me, this is not a broad criticism. This is just a personal preference. The reason I think you should watch Boyhood is because I think Ethan Hawke is so underrated in it. Um, You have to know about the way that this movie was made and how basically it was like going off to summer camp. And they would go for a couple weeks. And a lot of it was unscripted until, you know, right leading up to it. And Richard Linklater would be like, hey, Ethan, what's going on in your life? And Ethan Hawke would be going through a divorce. And so they would talk about that. It was incredibly collaborative and personal from that level. Um, the mom in this movie is played by... Patricia Arquette. Yeah. And I think she She was, won. She won an Oscar for it. She did. But I think her character is... I think her character handles a little bit more of the dramatic moments of the film and for me they're just a little forced isn't the right word uh, uh, fictitious maybe is better i just i i feel like um ethan hawk is drawing a lot of personal preferences and it's a lot of little things with him arquette is doing the heavy lifting of the script but i prefer the ethan hawk simple realism and tracking the things that are actually mirroring his life as a person no i mean for sure and that's that's certainly there um i agree with that completely and it also comes down to you know link later i don't think there's an actor in this world link later trusts more than ethan hawk so he can give him less and he knows that hawk will do more with it <laughs> um but i i want to clarify that patricia arquette's performance as the mother is fantastic mm-hmm no, it's um, good. It's good. I, I guess maybe my... I, I can't vocalize well my issues more with the character than the performance as written. Do you understand... Just do you, Nick, understand the distinction I'm trying to make? Yes. Okay. That's all I really I am just about. clarifying... I was just clarifying that for the sake of it. Yeah. Um, no, they're both great. I mean, this is a movie with two really good adult performances and a very interesting look at child actors growing up because you know it's called boyhood it's about the boy but um linklater's daughter plays the sister in the movie and it's a couple years difference but you still get to see them over 12 years grow she she turns into a better actress probably helps that her dad is richard linklater but there you go i still think just based off of how it is and the two good performances contained in it it kind of should be a one watch for everyone well, I mean, sure. It's you know, it, it's the thing with with Linklater, though, right? Like, it's you need to be in that mindset to to see his movies. And when you're gonna get a movie like Boyhood, that's gonna you know, the, that is now a front runner for Best Picture, you're getting a lot of people that don't watch Linklater watching the movie, mm-hmm. and so that's gonna sort of change, uh, you know, the dynamic of of what people think about it. Yeah. And that's where, yeah, I'm very much a, a believer in the mindset of watching a Linklater movie. You need to be you need to be ready for what you're about to see. So that's that was my point there. But either way, Boy, Boyhood's an outstanding movie. I'm a big fan. Well, let's talk about his next movie, because I'd also call it outstanding. Um, 2016's Everybody Wants Some. 
Yeah, so everybody wants some. I don't know. Does this go in the hidden gem category? Is that a is this a legal hidden gem? I don't know how many people have seen this fucking thing. No, it, it is one of those where I think when it came out. So I mean, this movie bombed. It was a ten million dollar budget. It made five million, but it really like I think there were a couple critics who like would mention it. Maybe it would be in their like bottom half of their top ten at the end of the year. But other than that, this movie got no love, and it's. Yeah. I might say that I prefer it to Dazed and Confused at this point, maybe just because it's newer and I've seen Dazed and Confused so much. Um, but this movie is absolutely fantastic. It is the spiritual sequel to Dazed. Dazed takes place in the 70s. This movie takes place in the 80s instead of high school and the last days of the school year. This is the first couple days of a freshman moving into college. Um, so and instead is... of football players, they're baseball players. Yeah. Well, no, they're baseball and... Oh, no. Well, some of them are... No. Wiley Wiggins is baseball. It doesn't matter. Yeah, the, the the younger kids. The kids going into the next school are baseball. It's, that's a parallel. Um, no, no, no. Yeah, we're, we're getting off the point. It, it is just like Days and Confused, where you have a great hangout movie, a fantastic ensemble, where everyone is identifiable, and everyone in this movie gets multiple funny scenes, um, but they're all still well-rounded characters. Again, killer music. You've taken, you know, the hits of the 70s. This time he's got enough cloth that he gets to handpick the 80s music he wants. And all of that ties in great. And also, I don't know, for me and my life, like, you know, we saw Days Confused right as we were coming out of high school. For me, in high school for you, we saw this movie right after we finished college. And it is such a love letter to college. Whether you had this experience or not. We didn't see this right after we finished college. We saw this right after we moved to New York. We'd been out of college for... I mean, this is, this came out in 2016. True. But uh, metaphor. I'm, clarif- I'm just clarifying. Yeah. It wasn't right after. Just, but this is the love letter to college. Whether you had this type of experience or not, it, it, it's got those rose-colored glasses to college that Dazed has to high school. Yeah, for sure. And it gave the world Glenn Powell. Like, I, he is going to be such a big star, and maybe people will then rediscover this movie. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. Either him or uh, or Wyatt Russell. Yeah, he's another one. Uh, uh, the the girl is actually doing a lot. Yeah, she does a lot. That now that's just one. This is one distinction I think does have to be made as well. Is um, you know, when it one of the criticisms that this movie got when it came out is that the cast is very overwhelmingly male. Um, you know, as opposed to days where there are a decent amount of female characters within the film. Um, and I don't give a shit because it's a, you know, it, it's a, a product of what the movie is, but I do think it needs to be mentioned is that that's an issue that some took with it is that it's very, um, it, it focuses a lot more on the athletes and sort of the bro mentality. Yeah. But I will say like Zoe Deutsch gets her scenes and she certainly makes the most of them. I like, I, I really like her in this movie. It's not a surprise that she has probably found more success than some of those other guys, even though I know some of them were like just baseball players that he cast in this movie. It was kind of like a miracle situation. Um, Well, I mean, sort of. There's also, um, I know that the, um, the one guy, the, um, the the black guy on the team, um, he ended up doing Hamilton on Broadway. Oh, wow. Like he wasn't uh, he he wasn't in the original cast of Hamilton, um, but 
uh, he auditioned for, uh, a, I guess, to be in the second cast of Hamilton uh, while this movie was filming. J. Quentin Johnson. Yeah. Um, but Link later encouraged him to, to go audition for Hamilton and reworked some schedule to allow him to do so. Cool. Um, yeah. So yeah, he's a New York stage actor now, I guess. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know where he is presently, but you know what I mean? But yeah. So this movie, I think, you know, it's four years old right now. Maybe 10 years from now, as we look back on it, we might think of this exactly like Days and Confused, where it just was a lot of young actors, one of their first big steps into Hollywood. I think we're just too, we're not far enough removed to really make that distinction. Right now, Wyatt Russell and Glenn Powell are certainly the two that are popping first and foremost out of that male ensemble. Yeah, out of the male ensemble, I mean. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, other than that, like a lot of my statements about the movie are going to be very similar to what I said about Dazed, right? Where it's, you know, it's the same thing where, you know, the the characters in the movie almost become your friends and you want to just keep going back and, um, you know, spending time with them. I've rewatched this movie since originally seeing it probably upwards of 10 times i'm sure you've done it even more oh absolutely um if i can maybe one of the reasons why i also might certainly encourage people to see it but maybe personally give it an edge over dazed and confused it deals really well with the i don't want to call it like a notion but the in college you kind of have to find yourself again whether you're coming from a small town or a big city, no matter where you're going, college is a chance for you to rediscover who you are and kind of who you want to be. And this is the first three days before before the college year starts. So it's a very small time picture, but it really deals with that a lot in some kind of fun and interesting ways. Um, particularly, like, they go to three different bars. All three different bars are wildly variant. The characters even talk about, like, changing into different costumes and trying on different skins like it's something that not a lot of college movies necessarily i think put that much thought and visual representation into yeah well it's a movie that there's a lot more deeper stuff going on than your standard like um you know frat movie but at the same time it's still a pretty it's still a pretty funny college comedy as well so you know it's yeah i i agree it's it's like it's like watching Van Wilder, but with a bigger brain, you know? I would say, I mean, I know this is one of your movies, but I would say it's pretty close to Animal House in the sense that you've got so many funny people in the main group. I mean, yeah. They're not as I mean, you're talking about... You're, talking, you're comparing it to my favorite movie of all time right now, but, like, you know, sure. I, I see a lot of parallels. Maybe not... Not, I was about to say not scriptural parallels. That's not the right word. Well, not structural parallels. But I do think, in the sense of like, you've got multiple different classes within the college, but everyone in this small little group has their own unique personality and generally gets in a couple really good jokes. Which is like, you know, you compare it to something like Van Wilder, which is different because Van Wilder is the Ryan Reynolds show. This is a ensemble where every time I watch it, a different person comes out as my MVP because they're so funny. Yeah. All right, we're getting towards the the, the end. Uh, huh. Two left. 
Uh, next one is uh, Last Flag Flying. You know which what? Which is a sequel. Spiritual sequel. Uh, it's but the book is a direct sequel that it's based off of. Um, yeah. So uh, you can't. I don't know. I I don't know. It's it's gray area. I don't know if you could just throw spiritual sequel out there. I feel like when this movie came out, it was spiritual sequel was thrown out a lot because it's uh, okay. So, so those of you who don't know, um, the Last Stand movie made in the seventies. Jack Nicholson, uh, Randy Quaid before he the was last crazy. Stand, that's not what it's called. It's the last detail. Oh, god damn! The Last Stand's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Well, uh, we've clearly reached close to the end of the night. Uh, the last detail. <laughs> Uh, Jack Nicholson, Randy Quaid, back when he was a serious actor and not a crazy person. And it's directed by Hal Ashby, one of those famous 70s directors. The In 2017, like many years after the book that The Last Stand was uh, based off of came out, the guy who wrote it wrote a sequel about the three main characters when they are older. And they did some tweaks to the story to help it, but basically... It's three old soldiers are getting together for a road trip. Um, A light spoiler is just, you know, one of them, son, is in the uh, military and has died. And he gets these two mentors of his to come help him get his son's body and be there at the burial. And so there's... I don't know why. I'm I'm getting a little just like you know some goosebumps just thinking about it there's some really effective stuff in this movie especially with the three actors because it's brian cranston it's Lawrence fishburne and it's steve carell and i think they're all doing a really good job in this movie that doesn't make a shit ton of sense but the premise is an interesting sequel especially if you like the last detail like this is certainly a movie that i think is a companion piece film i don't think it stands on its own particularly well because um, a lot of the enjoyment I get out of it is these three actors playing characters that three other actors have played. Um, yeah, because it's Cranston playing Nicholson and it's Carell playing Quaid. Um, I know it's got... terrible. I don't remember who Fishburne is playing. Um, I'll look it up right now because I want to be thorough. Um, Otis Young. Yeah, and so it's Larry Fishburne playing Otis Young. Um Lawrence Fishburne is what most people know him as, though he was credited as Larry early in his career. So I like to call him Larry Fishburne. That's I do fun, too. It's a it's a fun thing for me. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's I don't know. Like, I I appreciated it uh, from a you know from an acting standpoint, and um, there were some really nice emotional moments in it. Occasionally, there were a few there were a few moments in it that were very like, well, what. Times have changed. Times have changed so hard. What? There's white rappers now. That's crazy. And it's like it felt very like old man yells at cloud. Oh, I um, was gonna call it dad hijinks. <laughs> like there's a whole big section on cell phones in this movie that came out in 2017. <laughs> um, yes. And, and like so. It's set a little bit in the past because it's set during the Iraq War, and but they never really like. Linklater is not making any kind of a political statement about it. It's just simply this soldier has died in the Iraq war. His father was in the service 
and has to go collect the body and just needs the emotional support so he reaches out to these other people who are in the service who might kind of be able to help him and understand him um and, and there's a couple really schmaltzy sentimental stuff in there but i think Linklater is just a good enough director that he grounds it and makes it work for me and also a, a lot of credit needs to go to the, the three main actors as well because the three main actors do have chemistry with with each other and i don't think the movie would work otherwise uh, i'll say i i do think cranston is the only one who is like taking direct inspiration from the last detail yeah the other ones really aren't but that's why this is like in that weird sequel realm there's some there's an asterisk here um, well it wouldn't i mean if we're being real, Steve Carell doing a Randy Quaid might be weird. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just, let me ask you this, Nick. Did the emotional core of this movie work for you? Yeah, I thought it was fine. Like, it's not a movie. It's not a movie that I felt was particularly. Like, it never hit me hard at any point, and, like, there's enough Linklater that does that where I consider it mid-level. Um, at the same time, like, I enjoyed it, and I thought that, you know, there, there were some really well-acted emotional moments occasionally. Yeah. I, I This movie definitely kind of got shit on when it came out, and, I mean, no one saw this. Um, I think it made less than a million dollars before it got dumped on Amazon Prime, but... I, it, I remember being pumped for this shit. And then I watched it and I was like, yeah, it was all right. I was too. I, I just think, you know, you have to understand that this is a, a it's a flawed movie. For sure. You know, it, uh, granted, if you're somebody who doesn't know how you feel about Linklater yet, don't start with this one. Absolutely just, not. <laughs> this is for, this is for people who are aiming to be completionists. Um, uh, but speaking uh, of completionists, <laughs> like this is. Did you know that Richard Linklater had a movie that came out in 2019? Most of the world didn't. <laughs> I did. I did know that. I remember when Kate uh, Blanchett got nominated for a Golden Globe. I was like, oh my God, someone else saw this movie. Um, so in 2019, he uh, does an adaptation of the book, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It stars Kate Blanchett. I really don't like this movie. It's about uh, a woman discovering herself. Well, at least we can get into the plot before you start shitting on the fucking thing. <laughs> I guess so. L let's say this. I mentioned that it's an adaptation from a book because the book is told very much more like, uh, I don't want to call it a full-on mystery, but it, uh, my understanding is that it's a lot of letter exchanges between characters. Um, and the whole question of where'd you go, Bernadette, she goes somewhere and her family has to follow her there's absolutely no mystery in the movie of where she went the book there is more is my understanding sure. so taking that aside background what you're presented with is this is um an interesting little movie where Kate Blanchett is uh, an eccentric architect who is basically rebelling against the suburbs and particularly the affluent, white, upper-middle-class suburbs. Yeah, that sounds about right. You should take over, because I, I kind of just have negative things to say at this point. All right, well, yeah, if, 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 if I should step in before you, you go ham on this baby, um, uh, I'll say this. I 
I appreciated this for what it was. I thought Blanchett's performance was good. Uh, I appreciated some of the commentary against the the suburbs and kind of the um, the the kind of bullshit nature of a lot of the problems that the suburban parents deal with and that sort of thing. Um, it sort of created this world where the um, uh, no, that's pretty much going to be a repeat of what I just fucking said. You get the idea. It's, you know, it, it, it's an anti-suburb movie, and, and for what it is, I thought it was a fine, though very forgettable movie. Very forgettable, I will certainly agree with. Uh, for me, it, it, yes, it's a movie about rebelling against some suburb things, but Kate, I mentioned Kate Blanchett is an eccentric architect. Like, she is still an incredibly wealthy and, at one time, well-known architect so the parallel between her having to be in the suburbs with her daughter and her her husband never i never fully get invested or buy into it her rival is kristen wig who i think does a really good job and i think there's some fun stuff there but as an overall performance kate blanchett is always always good for me i just think she's kind of at her par right now she's not like phoning anything in but like i've just seen her do a lot more um her husband. Well, I guess it would probably it probably work better if you're a bit more emotionally invested in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I also I don't think she has any chemistry with her husband. Um, yeah, I that to me that that worked though. Uh, you know, I'd like Billy Crudup, but I also don't totally love him in this, and I don't think their relationship dynamic works very well. Um, I also that's not that's not the important dynamic of the movie though. I mean, it, it, it's there. The important dynamic but... is. I think supposed to be her and her daughter. It is her and her daughter. It's certainly her and her daughter. But she's also such a selfish character from the very get-go that, like, you know, the whole reason she kind of runs away is to get away from things, but she's also, like, leaving her daughter and her husband in the lurch. She has marital troubles. That's fine. But she's still, like, abandoning her daughter to a small extent. And, you know, it's the daughter's passion that uh, she, you know, gets her dad to drop his busy body life to go after her mom. But I wish then that the story had been told exclusively from the child's point of view, not from Kate Blanchett's reviling against the suburb point of view. And it all kind of leads me to ask like, who is this movie really for? Cause I don't think your average audience member will totally connect with it. I think that, you know, for a, family movie which i mean this kind of is it's like pg-13 i you know i don't think there's a good enough message at the center of it and there's too much stuff about you know her worried about her husband having an affair and things like that i just don't nothing ever totally connects with me and i don't know who this movie would like totally connect with i'd assume it's it's for uh suburban moms who feel like they're it's bullshit um i imagine it's for richard linklater nerds like us because we both fucking watched it. Um, oh, yeah. But, like, you know, it's... It, the, the, the I guess the, the, the point for me is, like, you know, if just going back to one thing you said earlier is... This is... I, I, I need to double clarify. I hate getting into debates about movies that I don't really like. Especially at the end of a two-hour podcast. But I, I think that while there is definitely an inherent selfishness within her character to, to make some of the decisions that she makes 
I think at the same point for me, those decisions were kind of earned in the sense that, yeah, like it's, it's the kind of thing where, I don't know, I look at it like there's, there's obviously responsibilities that you have if you're going to uproot your life and do something crazy. Right. And that idea is, you know, it becomes a bit more, uh, difficult as life goes on and you end up in a scenario where you have a family and stuff like that right um but there is always that fantasy in a lot of people's mind of what if i just fucking went for it anyway right and so to me in movies that that do what this movie does another example of it i would think of would be uh, uh city island i don't know if you ever saw that one i haven't um it's an interesting movie it's a, a I put it in the same plane as this one, to be honest. I remember it was a movie that my buddy, uh, that actually my buddy Phil, um, was a huge fan of. Uh, it's Andy Garcia, um, but uh, the the premise of that movie is it's a it's a middle aged man who decides he wants to become an actor, and like there's obviously a lot of issues with that when it comes to you know the family being reliant on his job and that sort of thing, right? You know, that you can look at the decision like that, like, through the selfishness of it. And I, I get it, but at the same time, I think for the core audience of what this movie was designed for, it's not the type of thing where you're going to be, you know, so much focusing on the selfishness of it, but, you know, more the bold idea to go for it, especially considering her family is ultimately pretty supportive of what she does. Honestly, I'm really glad you brought that up because I I think this is another, you know, we can totally agree to disagree on this. It's just the artistic pursuit is another issue I have with this movie because I, as an artist, asterisk, um, I don't know. I, I generally tend to sympathize with these characters, but I feel like, you know, her, her artistry, her obsession is all about architecture and there's a lot of architecture shoe leather in this movie. I just don't think that that's going to be relatable. And the fact that it's not necessarily just breaking out of my suburban ways, but it's breaking out of my suburban ways to get back to my true artistic heart and self. It's that extra layer that really kind of threw me off. I'm so glad you reminded me about this. Um, Cause I, I think that's a, a very important aspect in the movie is about her and herself as a, a, a once prominent architect and yeah. the value that she puts on her life from having once been a very prominent architect does really kind of feed into a lot of her character's decisions. And that's just one of those things that never rubbed quite right with me. No, that's fair. Um, you know, either way, it's not like this is going to be on my top or bottom personally. Like it's just, it, it's a movie that's, yeah. But, mid-level link later lower mid-level link later for being fair um but let's get to the like i'm hungry let's i need to eat some dinner so like let's let's yeah, get to the let's wrap this uh, up whatever uh, the shit that we talk about is so um notably he's got two things that he's working on right now um he's doing a movie called apollo 10 and a half which is going to be rotoscoping so i likely won't see it um but that's technically the next thing that he has on deck coming up it's due to come out in 2021 assuming Mm -hmm. the world is normal again i don't know um and then the other thing is he was announced he is doing merrily we roll along which it's an adaptation of a sondheim musical but he's filming it like they filmed boyhood where it's going to be filmed over a period of time with the same actors huh 
I mean, honestly, Merrily We Roll Along is a really good show. Um, I think it's interesting that he's doing a musical. I'm curious how it turns out if he can replicate the same wonderful circumstances that brought us boyhood twice. I don't know. But I mean, yeah, I mean, importantly, the man after a 30 year career is the next after 30 years. The next two things he's doing are two things that are very unique to him as a filmmaker and that he is very passionate about. So that speaks a lot for him as a director, I think. Oh, yeah. One of the greatest directors of all time. I stand by that. Yeah. Let's start with let's start with worse. Let's just get it out of the way. And my worst pick, I'm going to go Bad News Bears. I wasn't even going to pick Bad News Bears, but you know what? Like when we were talking about it, I'm going to go bad being the absence of good in this one. And bad, like Bad News Bears didn't need to exist. So yeah, fuck that. This is hard for me because like the gut reaction is to go Waking Life. It's really because I hate the rotoscoping so much. Um, so if you don't like rotoscoping, you're probably not going to watch either. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd say maybe, uh, maybe Suburbia. Just because if you're looking for his more signature style, that's the one that I think accomplishes his stuff and what he's going for the worst. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That seems fair. Yeah. If we're going best, I'm I'm breaking I'm breaking the fucking rules. I'm saying the before trilogy. It's really tough to do best. Like, because I love Dazed and everybody wants them so much. Um, I love, uh, I love Boyhood a lot. Um, you know, there's, there's other movies in here that I like a lot too, but I think the, the before trilogy is the best thing he's made. Yeah, no, it undeniably is. Uh, if we're going to pick one singular movie, I'd also like to just maybe give a little love to the fact that school of rock is a family comedy that is way better than it has any right to be it's incredibly rewatchable yeah i I, there's so much good to choose from here it's like it yeah and school of rock i would say is his most popular i would say it's yeah it's very it's it's palatable to everyone for sure yeah so maybe i'm gonna I'm, i'm gonna choose that one Though you're right, the, like the, the universality be- of School of Rock, yeah. the before trilogy is the most outstanding. Yeah, and I can't pick one in that set, so I'm just saying all three. I don't give a shit. Yeah, start at the beginning, work your way through, give yourself a little bit of space. Yeah, and I wouldn't watch two or three without watching one. So yeah, I mean, I'm with you. Um, and then Hidden Gem, you probably know it's coming from what I said. Um, and like, you know, I was debating if everybody wants some counts as a hidden gem or not. But like, in terms of hidden hidden gem, it's tape. I think tape is uh, a really good unit set thriller that certainly almost no one's seen. I think you know what? I, I also I love everybody wants some. It's debatable whether or not it's a hidden gem or not. I feel like just people in our circle know it and love it so much, so maybe that skews our view of it. But uh, hmm. Bernie's going to be my hidden gem just because I was so surprised at it. I mean, I'm talking about a rewatch. I was so surprised at how much I liked it, how charming it was, how funny it was, the depth of performances from all three of the main cast members. Yeah, I, I think go back and rewatch it. I think it's got a little bit of universality. Yeah. All right, so um, my name is Zachary D'Antonio. I'm going to wrap this up. 
I'm Nick Dorizo. I never said my last name initially, so if in case you were worried I was a different Nick, I'm not. I'm Nick Dorizo. That's why there's this awkward pause when you introduce me, because I was like, oh, he just said Nick, whatever. I just said, I'm Nick. Yeah, I know. I, I don't I don't know. I fuck around, man. I, we always record after I'm done work. And like, I don't know what's going on anymore. We're changing it up. I'm starving. Let's go. Um, you can find us on all streaming apps now. Please rate, review, and subscribe. All that kind of bullshit, because it helps us out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. Nick, and where can, can people fi- find you? You can find me on Letterboxd. I don't know about that Twitter thing. Um, but uh, the letterbox, yeah, it should be on there under my name or whatever. And hey, uh, you know what? If you guys have someone that you're really passionate about, why don't you uh, hit us up? Give us some recommendations. Maybe we'll take it and uh, do a deep dive on someone. I certainly won't. I I will never vote in favor of anything you people want. Uh, (laughs) I was kidding. Relax. I just wanted you to sit in that for a second. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I might, I, I, I don't know, I might. <laughs> no, audience interaction. We'll, we'll certainly take it into, you know. That's our whole shtick. I'm supposed to be the mean one. Yeah, I know. Honestly, I was pretty mean to Link later in this episode, and I love him. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's, it, it, it creates, it builds character. Yeah. Um, I. You know what, everyone, you're going to be hearing this probably months after we record it, but uh, stay safe. Oh, you can The world will be fixed by then. Yeah, I don't know. Certainly these are good escapist movies if you need them. I'd say kind of almost more so than anyone we've done. Like, go lose yourself in an afternoon and dazed and confused or everybody wants some or the before movies or... Even uh, Bernie and me and Orson Welles or something. The, the man builds a world of his movies. Go go escape into them. Yeah. And join us next time for when we uh, when we we just talk about the Oscar Mayer Wiener commercial for the whole time. That's all we're going to do. Is it still going? Okay, it is. All right. Well, bye. Bye.